You can turn in your Bible to John chapter 7. We'll look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. And there are some Bibles available in the back if you need, um, next to the children's supplies there. Um, John 7. Do you ever wonder what God is doing in your life? Wonder um, where he's taking you exactly or or how he's working upon you, what he's doing with you. Wonder how in the world what he appears to be doing could possibly be good. You ever wonder why he doesn't make himself and his ways more plain to us? Are you ever suspicious of him? Do you ever suppose somewhere in the back of your mind that he's actually against you? Do you ever struggle to trust him even though you can't fully understand him? If you don't answer yes to questions like these, someone should lean over and uh, check you for a pulse. (laughs) Blink your eyes. One for yes, two for no. Um, God accommodates himself. God accommodates himself to us in a lot of ways, in order to reveal himself to us, even to the point of becoming a human being like us. He's gone that far to accommodate himself to us, but he doesn't accommodate himself to our expectations. He doesn't always seem interested in making sure we're comfortable as he reveals himself to us. He isn't controlled by our opinions of him. And your feelings about him don't dictate his actions in your life or toward you. In other words, God isn't afraid of you. God isn't afraid of you. He loves you, but he isn't afraid of you. And there's a huge difference there that we need to see because I think usually we just can't see the difference. And we do see that difference in Jesus Christ as he reveals God to us. Jesus isn't domesticated live up to all our expectations. He's not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis puts it, but he's good. He's unpredictable. God's unpredictable. We see that in Jesus, which feels unsettling to us because doesn't he want to settle us with the knowledge of himself? He doesn't spell out his reasons for everything, which confuses us. Doesn't he want us to have clarity about himself? These are normal questions. Jesus is not a normal person. Or rather, Jesus is the only normal person and we're all standing on our heads. Either way, if we're going to connect with Jesus and come to know God through him, then we're going to have to know him as the faithful contrarian, the one whose faithfulness to God, the Father, means standing against us in so many ways. Yet ultimately, Uh, It means that he's the only one who's actually for us because of his faithfulness to God, his Father. So that's what we'll talk about a little bit this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help as we think about your word, as we respond to it. We're prone to have the wrong response. We pray that you would help help us to trust you, help us to see you, and to glory in who you are that we see clearly in Jesus Christ, this one who can be confusing to us, yet is um, ultimately trustworthy. We pray for your help, for your Holy Spirit's help now, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So this passage, uh, this scene follows the feeding of the multitude. John 6, the feeding of the multitude, the bread of life discourse, where Jesus had resisted the temptation to power when the crowds wanted to take him and by force make him king. And also resisted uh, the temptation to, let's call it relevance, when the crowds wanted him to make bread and just keep feeding them lunch, just keep providing for them their, their earthly desires, their true desires. And now we see the temptation to popularity, to be spectacular. And there is something of a parallel uh, to or an expansion on the devil's temptations. You remember they're recorded in the, um, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days where he was without food and, and drink, and he uh, was tempted by the devil where he, as our champion, as our vicar, as, on our behalf, the perfect human being, met all the devil's challenges and temptations head on and conquered the devil, stood against him in our place. This is, there's something of a parallel to these, uh, the devil's particular three temptations um, here. So the setting, the setting for our passage now is early fall. So this is several months after what happens in John chapter 6, which took, time around, uh, took place around the time of the Passover. The, the setting now is early fall. It's around the time of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's sometimes called. This is one of the three annual feasts that, um, that required pilgrimage to Jerusalem. As Bill read in our Old Testament reading, there were three feasts where God said, all your males are going to go up to Jerusalem, or actually go up to the place where I show you, which is wherever his presence was, the tabernacle early on, and then uh, the temple. You're going to go up, you're going to bring your offerings at these three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Booths. <clears throat> and so this was the, the it, it's sort of like Thanksgiving, that they're going up to Jerusalem for. The Feast of Booths is kind of like Thanksgiving. It's, it's a celebration of God's provision. It's, obser- it's, it's observed uh, explicitly after the harvest, uh, where the grain has already been processed through the fre- threshing floor and the, the, the wine press is already produced. So we're, um, we're 
sometime late September, early October, I think. Uh, it's like Thanksgiving after the harvest, and it commemorated Israel's time in the wilderness. That's maybe more explicit from the reading, from the Old Testament reading from Leviticus 23. <clears throat> it commemorated Israel's time in the wilderness after God had delivered them from Egypt on their way to the promised land where they were in the wilderness for 40 years. A bit frustrating to many. They were to live in temporary shelters now at this, the Feast of Booths is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles because they were supposed to come and build these little booths. Maybe they were little structures with leafy roofs or um, maybe tents of some sort. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but temporary dwellings, temporary shelters for the week that was spent in and around Jerusalem as they brought their offerings at this Thanksgiving time and time of commemorating uh, the wilderness wanderings. It was sort of like... <clears throat> A mandatory church camp out. All right. We have one every year, but no, you've all got to come and we've all got to do these things. It's going to be a week long. And, right? It was the most popular of the major festivals. More people came to this festival than all the other ones that they were supposed to come to. Uh, it was the most popular. Huge numbers were in Jerusalem at this time. So here are Jesus' brothers now. They're in Galilee because Jesus, you know, in a sense, it's not safe for him to be going around in the southern part of the country in Judea and Jerusalem um, because the Jews are looking to kill him already. And so he's up in the north in Galilee. And here's his brothers. Presumably they're uh, his younger half-brothers, the siblings that he has uh, that were born to Joseph and Mary after his birth. Um, and they include people like James and Jude, who would eventually go on to write New Testament letters um, that we have. And so... These brothers of his, they're acting as his public relations consultants or marketing strategists. They advise him, go up to the feast, capitalize on the visibility at this big venue, and maximize your SEO. Right? That's, that, that's what's in their mind, and that's the advice that they give to Jesus. Leave here. This Galilee is nowhere. It's nowhere. This is um, irrelevant, insignificant place leave here, go up to Judea, up to the, the big city, where uh, you have some disciples there, right? Some of the disciples from, your, from, from that area, uh, they, so that they also may see the works that you're doing. <clears throat> For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That makes total sense. <laughs> I, if you're trying to get followers, book some gigs and start using social media. But there's a serious disconnect here, somewhere, between Jesus and his brothers. It says that they said what they said. They gave him this advice because they didn't believe in him. It, it demonstrates that they didn't believe in him, that they said this. It says in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Apparently their suggestion to him well-meaning as it seems, um, it came from a heart of unbelief, a heart that actually was not for Jesus, but against Jesus and against what he was doing, against who he is and what he stands for and everything, right? Apparently, it was wrong for them to assume that he was seeking to be known openly. That, that boggles our minds, right? We're not sure how what they said was wrong, how it's wrong-headed. They live in a world 
where it's entirely normal to do what you do for the recognition that you'll get from it. Where, uh, where you're concerned for the opinion of other people, it drives everything about you, drives who you are and what you do. That's the world they live in. Where, where some version of what's called the fear of men is so pervasive that, of course, Jesus should want to step into the limelight and perform. It's a no-brainer. We all do this. What's wrong with this again? You live in that world, too, and if you're anything like me, far too often you just go right along with it. I'm self-conscious all the time about how I'm coming across to others, and it's it's instinctive. It's a knee-jerk thing to to put on a good show for the recognition, or at least the imagined recognition that it gets me, or some other kind of payoff. Maybe you're trying to impress people at work, so that it it's easier for you there, or you get a better, you know, you, a better paycheck, a raise, a promotion, or whatever. Maybe you're trying to impress a romantic interest to get out of that what you want. Maybe you're just trying to impress your friends with your cleverness on a regular basis. That, whatever it is, living to impress, living for the opinions of other people, doing what you do because of your concern for their opinions of you, what it is you might receive back from them, living to impress is the flip side of the fear of men. You're afraid of people. They loom larger in your sight uh, than they should. Let's just put it that way. But but Jesus isn't like that at all. Jesus is not afraid of men. He doesn't live to impress others. Their opinion of him isn't his primary concern. He resists the temptation to popularity. Take it or leave it. In fact, he points out the reality that who he is, who he is goes right against the grain of all of that. It goes right against the grain of the whole world. He says to his brothers in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Implication. There's a fundamental difference between you and me. My time has not yet come. Yours is always here. The world cannot hate you, it says in verse 7, but it hates me. You're part of the world. You go right along with it. You're going with the flow. You're, You're not going upstream. You're part of the world. Therefore, it can't hate you. I'm not part of the world. I don't go along with the way things are supposed to work. I'm not normal, right? Um... I'm not part of the world of which you are a part. And the world of which you are a part is set against me. And that's okay. That's okay. He's not just trying to fix that. I'm not here for a popularity contest, he says. If I were, I'd be doing rather poorly. Because the world already hates me. It's this quote from... um, Rodney Whitaker, who has a commentary on John's Gospel, he says, that's at the uh, first page of the bulletin, Jesus' aim is not to gain a following, but to reveal his Father by being faithful and obedient to him. He's not living for the opinions of others. He says in verse 7, the world hates me 
because I testify about it that its works are evil. Apparently, Jesus isn't trying to change the world's mind about him by doing the song and dance that's demanded of him. Apparently, he didn't read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People because nobody looking to be popular will look to shine a light on other people's sins. It doesn't go well, ever. I think it's absolutely fascinating that at least in this context, Jesus is uh, allowing his ministry to be characterized as testifying to the world that its works are evil. Clearly, that's not all Jesus is about. He doesn't just want to make you feel bad by pointing out what you've done that's wrong against God's will, rebellious, treasonous against your creator. He's not just trying to point that out and leave you in that place of frustration. His primary concern is to love his father and to obey his father and be faithful to his father and to reveal his father to us. But it's a huge part of the world's perception of him and reaction to him that he's he's not easy to get along with because he's always pointing out how we're messed up. He's always pointing out how I'm wrong. And he doesn't deny that that's true. He's not, he's not trying to fix that problem. His presence and his words are a deep challenge to us at the core. And that, she, that, that challenge creates a lot of friction between him and us, between God and us, between Christ and us. There's a lot of friction because I don't want to be told that I'm a people pleaser. I don't want that to be pointed out how frequently that drives everything I do. I don't want to be told that, that I've distorted my identity or lost my identity in bending my life around the opinions of other people, living for their opinions of me. I don't want to be told that. And when Jesus, who isn't like that at all, comes into contact with people like me, people like us, well, he can go to hell. And the crazy thing is he's willing to do just that because of his faithful love. Because of his love. But not just yet, he tells his brothers. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. It's the second time that he's used that language. My time has not yet come. My time is not here yet. Right? He's drawing a connection between this feast going up to Jerusalem which it doesn't matter which direction you're coming from, north, south, east, or west, you're going up to Jerusalem because it's up kind of on a mountain and also up to where God's presence is. It's this ascension. Going up to Jerusalem, he's drawing a connection there between that and the time of his death, the hour of his death, where he pours out his life to fix the broken world. He isn't afraid to go up to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, even though people are looking to kill him there. He knows that. Fear drives everybody. I mean, look at the rest of the passage. People are muttering. People are gossiping. They won't say anything out loud because they're afraid of what other people might think of them. It might get them in trouble to have a positive opinion about Jesus. Right? Everybody is driven by the fear of men except for him. He's not afraid of people. <clears throat> um, he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything that he does out of the fear of other people. 
And in fact, he does end up going to the feast. We, we shouldn't take this as some sort of deception on his part, a deception of his brothers um, when he says, I'm not going up to this feast. Uh, we, should, we should look at that as the assertion of his freedom from their expectations of him. You want me to go up for this reason. I'm not going up for that reason. And, and it's a hint to something deeper that he's referring to. Just like when he responded in John chapter 2, he, he responded at first negatively to his mother, who said, can you do something about the wine shortage problem at this, at this party? He says, he, he creates a distance. And you get the idea, he's not interested in doing what she wants him to do, right? But then he turns around and does the very thing that she asked him to do. Jesus leaves us scratching our heads, like, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? How is this legitimate? Sometimes the thing that God wants and the thing that we want are the same thing, but we want them for different reasons. And God needs to make the distinction that he's doing this for his reasons and not for our reasons. He's free from our reasons. He does everything that he does for his own reasons. God wants Jesus at the feast for his own purposes. And Jesus is faithful to his father, so he goes, but he doesn't go according to the brother's suggestion that he go publicly with trumpeting and fanfare, right? The temptation of popularity. When Jesus, who is God the Son, he's the pre-existent one, come in the flesh, when he thinks about the Feast of Booths, he wants to go, right? He thinks about it as the time Israel spent following him in the wilderness for 40 years. That's the way that he thinks about it. He thinks about how he made them live in booths. That's what it says in Leviticus 23. I want you to keep this annually, this feast, every year so that you and your children will remember, I made you live in tents for 40 years in the desert. Okay. How he stood against them. He didn't let them enter the promised land. That was his ultimate destiny that he had in store for them, but he stood against them. This is what he's thinking about. I made you live in tents because I stood against you. I prevented you. Yet at the same time, I dwelt with you. I was always there. I forgave your sins. I provided for you at every turn. Food and drink, whatever you needed, I was there for you. It's sort of funny that Israel loved the Feast of Booths when it was an annual reminder of the serious friction that they lived in with God. He's standing against us for our good. This feels weird, right? He commanded them to joyfully remember how God stood against you for 40 years for your good. It's, it's kind of funny. I mean, it's hilarious when you think about the fact that they like this feast. Does God want followers or not? We can, we can imagine certain things he could easily do to gain followers. Why lead us out into the desert for 40 years? Does he want followers? He's making Egypt look pretty appealing right now. Does God want us to be happy or not? Why keep us from the promised land? He's talked so well about it, and he's not letting us go there. Doesn't he want us to be happy? Does Jesus want followers 
why not step out of obscurity into fame? Why not reveal himself clearly to all people? Does Jesus want what's good for us? Why not usher in this glorious kingdom that the Bible's been talking about? Why not bring it right here and right now? This feast, this feast that has, it, it has sort of an eschatological note, this, um, this note of sort of the end time, the destiny that God has in store for his people with this uh, remembrance of just being on the brink of the promised land. This feast, it would be a great time for Jesus to just bring it all. Bring it to culmination. Bring it to fruition. Bring it to fulfillment. All of it right now. Why wouldn't you want to do that? That's where you're taking us, right? In Jesus, we see that God does love us. And he does want what is best for us. But that doesn't look anything like what we expected. Or what we demand of him. When he comes, it's a challenge. There's friction. He challenges us with his faithfulness. He challenges us with the the complete freedom of his love. He will be free to go up. That, That language, I think, is important. When he's talking about going up to the festival, going up to Jerusalem, he will be free to go up to the festival, just like when it is his time, when that time actually comes, he will freely go up to the cross, to his own death, for love's sake. It says in John 10, Jesus says, for this, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus says, I love you, I freely love you. And that love brings so much friction that it leads to my death, and that is really what you need. That is what is best for you, so I'm going to do that. If you want to come to know God, my death is something you need, and, and I'm, I'm happy to do it because I love you. And for no other reason. He isn't belligerent. right? He doesn't come into the world looking to pick a fight with you. Just to create friction for its own sake. But he is who he is. And he knew what would happen when we met. We told him to go to hell. Which he was perfectly willing to do but not because we wanted him to. He's free of that. He is the Lord, and he's not afraid of us. He went to the cross to suffer the damages of our broken relationship with God because it was the Father's will, and because he chose to do so out of love, freely. He was the rock struck in God's righteous anger that yielded its stream of water from which God's people drank for life. Because Jesus went to the cross to suffer in your place, now you may go up to God with festival joy, to God himself, reconciled and forgiven. And that, that whole thing was unquestionably his idea, his free, gracious, loving initiative. So maybe we don't always understand him 
and his ways. Maybe we wish for a little more information, a little more direction. Maybe we wonder where God is or what he's doing. But you can know this about God because of Jesus Christ. However it is that he's being unpredictable, however it is that he's being undomesticated or perplexing or mysterious or challenging your comfort or your expectations in life, however it is even that he's offending you deeply by testifying about you that your works are evil, if it was the free choice of his love to go to hell for you, you can trust that he's loving you faithfully. You can trust that he's faithful, that he's trustworthy. And if you don't yet understand how it is, how it is that he's loving you, well, who said that was necessary? I almost think we should expect not to understand Jesus all the time. After all, he's not normal like the rest of us. He's good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. It It seems a strange thing to give you thanks for sometimes. Because who he is and what he's done for us, it it, uh, runs right up against everything in this world, including ourselves and our own preferences and presuppositions and expectations of you. um, We pray that you would keep us in the room long enough to know your love for us, that we we would see that however it is that you're at work in the world and at work in our lives, the things that you're doing that leave us scratching our heads, Uh, whether we understand those things or not, that you would help us to see that that you are faithful, that you are true, and that everything you do is for our good, ultimately, that you love us, that you want us to be with you where you are, that you want to be with us forever, that ultimately you're going to fix all these things, and maybe there, there will be some clarity at that point. But we pray that you would help us, help us to trust your trustworthiness, even if we don't understand you fully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.